Hello everyone, welcome to the Boxing Science Podcast. This is episode 16. Very excited about this episode as we are talking to UFC Hall of Famer Forrest Griffin. In his career, he was very successful and he was UFC light heavyweight champion. And he took all that success, all that, all them lessons, all this experiment around training into his new role at the UFC Performance Institute in Las Vegas. Forrest's role is the Vice President of athletic development and we're going to be talking to him about his roles and his responsibilities and how he pushes the strength and conditioning, the nutrition, the physiology of that geared around mixed martial arts. So from his own experiences as a fighter, he can see where athletes and coaches need to improve and they're making great strides at the UFC Performance Institute. We're loving the data that's coming out and some of the work that they're doing. And now they've expanded into uh, China, where they've opened the UFC Performance Institute in Shanghai. We talk about this and loads of different things. It's a fantastic conversation. And if you want to find out more about the UFC Performance Institute, not only listen to this podcast episode, but listen to episode nine, where we talk to the UFC PI, Vice President of Performance, Dr. Duncan French. And if you're not already a subscriber yet, please hit the subscribe button and go and check out all our other content across our channels on Instagram, YouTube and boxingscience.co.uk. Okay, guys, hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions, please fire them over to us over our social media channels. So, take great pleasure in uh, welcoming... UFC Hall of Famer and now the Vice uh, President of Athletic Development, Forrest Griffin, to the podcast. Forrest, thank welcome you. to the Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Good stuff. Uh, for those that uh, don't know you, uh, can you just give a quick fire? Yeah, yeah. Yourself? if you don't know me, uh, Wikipedia me. I'm yeah. famous, or yeah. at least they used to be. <laughs> uh, no, I guess the, the biggest thing I got going on now is, you know, the UFC built the Performance Institute uh almost four years ago now the performance institute does basically what you know everybody kind of in in sport is trying to do right they put the whole puzzle together you've got your sports dietetics in a weight class sport like ours nothing is more important than sports dietetics right uh you understand your, your athletes have to make a weight the day before they can fight right so a lot of times fighters will call it two fights whatever um <clears throat> turns out that Fighting MMA, training MMA leads to injuries. So, of course, we have a physical therapy staff. Um, and then strength and conditioning, right? All that sort of capacity, strength. Stronger people are better, right? That stronger people are more useful, as they say. So, obviously, strength and conditioning. And then we have sports science. So, understanding your body. Um, we do a lot of work on that. Just, um, you know, your, your training load management in a sport like MMA where you've got as many as three or four different things you're training and that you have to train in a week. How do you manage your time and your physical, you know, resources the best, right? Without overtraining and then fall into that vicious cycle. Sports science does a lot of that. And then we have sports psychology now. We actually have that as well. Uh, brought that online recently. And kind of what I do is make sure that all of these services work to make you better in the actual octagon, right? Because if you're really strong and really powerful, but you, you know, you've neglected your technical training, you're going to be real good for a couple minutes. And then, you know, that technique's going to 
take over, you're going to lose, et cetera, right? So it's not just about looking good, although that, that is a nice perk of, of eating right and working out. Um, it, you know, it's performance at the end of the day. What are the things we're doing to lead to the best in octagon performance? And that's kind of what I do. So can you explain? Sometimes I, I bring guys shorts when they forgot their shorts, apparently, yeah. or the, the luggage gets lost. <laughs> if they run equipment around. So we, we do everything. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, we do yeah. that. I, I borrowed... Um, we borrowed each of his shorts, haven't we? And we lent shorts out as yeah, well. Yeah, but I'm a bit bigger than you. I'm a bit bigger than you, especially first lockdown. <laughs> um, so what? what is your, the daily kind of role and routine? It's, it sounds like you kind of bring it all, all together. There's lots of stuff going yeah, on. So, but... Yeah, before COVID, one of the things I did is when somebody kind of integrates with us or comes in for the first time, I give them a tour. I introduce them to you know, all our service providers that I was just talking about. And, and they say, hey, what's your MMA schedule like? What are you doing? How's your training work? How can we best work around that? And then, you know, I turn that conversation over to the technical expert in that discipline, right? So, you know, I, I'm not an expert at anything except maybe fighting or at least watching fights. I'm definitely an expert on that. But I know enough about each discipline to kind of get these athletes in the right direction, start the conversation with that actual service provider and get them what they need. Yeah, so you saw it's more too. It's about like, as far as the UFC as a whole, what are the ways the UFC can get what they need out of an athlete without impacting their performance? So, um, you know, one of the things we're working on another journal, one of the articles was the fight week. And what strikes me about fight week is, for eight to 10 weeks, you've you've lived this kind of monastic, awesome lifestyle with this regular routine, you're feeding, you're fueling your workouts. And then the last week, you're going to travel somewhere, you're going to have to do media at different times, and you're going to fight at a weird time in a weird place at a weird atmosphere with weird humidity you're not used to. It's such a crazy thing, right? Everything's different the last week. And I tell the fighters, look, we're going to try to limit that as much as we can but the more popular you are the more people want a piece of you and you know if you don't want to do those things then you just have to fight for free because at the end of the day that's selling the fight getting out there getting on espn you know it's just part of the you know part of the media thing is building yourself unfortunately uh, you have to do both and they watch it i always be like hey i love you guys media is great can we talk next week no next week they don't care there's somebody else next week it's your moment right now so, yeah, and obviously you having such a successful career puts you in a fantastic position to be able to not only advise the athletes, but also advise your staff on who might not come from a mixed martial arts background to give an insight to what are the demands of, of fight week. Um, your career finished, uh, fighting career about 2013 and the UFC PI uh, opened in about 2017. What was your kind of plans after uh, after your fighting career? Uh, and how did it come about you getting this opportunity? Yeah, you don't even need to finish the questions. I got so much to say. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> Sorry to cut you off. No. Uh, uh, so, you know, I didn't really want to be done when I was done. So I figured, you know, I got to make a little bit of a mark on the sport, being in the right place at the right time as a fighter, how can I improve the sport or leave my mark on the sport post-fight career, right? So what can I do now? What can I do with the UFC to, you know, to basically improve the quality of fighting, to prove the recruitment, the way it's it's viewed by people, just 
just, you know, I've done one thing right in life and that was love the right sport at the right time. And I, I just kind of want to bring that to everybody. How can I make the sport better for athletes, more palatable for, you know, older generation that kind of more boxing and kind of like they see blood, they don't know, or, you know, internationally, they see a fence and they're not sure that people should fight in the fence. That seems kind of crazy to them. You know, what, what are the ways we can make this sport more pop, uh, popular? And then one of the things I get to do is also what's what's the pathway to the UFC, right? If you think about in America, we have collegiate sports. Super easy. Everybody, if you're going to be in the pro, you usually do in high school. They know who the pros are going to be in the NBA, right? But for MMA, it's like, you know, you got these Olympic boxers, you got some good wrestlers, um, you know, but, but there's so many different avenues these fighters are coming from. Now you have um, the IMM. AF, you know, amateur mixed martial arts coming about, you know, so, so how can we make sure that we catch everybody that would be interested in fighting to just broaden that talent pool as much as possible. And that's another thing we, we get to do. That's very, very cool. All right. Should we uh, take um, a journey back three or three or four years to when the performance Institute was, was, was just in its inception what were the original key goals of the the PI? And, and yeah, so, uh, do you think that they've been met? Do you think they've been maybe changed over the last few years? Yeah, of course they're gonna they're gonna change and <clears throat> evolve, you know, right? So uh, James Kimball, the guy, the operations guy that kind of with with me, you know, was was kind of did like all the actual detail work uh, as we were building this thing. He, uh, you know, he, his thing was the evolution of MMA, right? So the Performance Institute itself evolves to meet the needs of the fighter uh, and the UFC as well, right? Um, but to, to answer your question, uh, a group of executives, uh, who's the man, the man city guy, what's his name? Gary Cook. He took uh, Lorenzo Fertitta and Lawrence, our chief operating officer, to the Man City, and he showed him everything. He showed him the, uh, what is it, the international, like you guys have another thing in Man City, just another just giant gym. He showed him all this stuff, the interconnectedness, you know, the way it's shaped like spokes on a hub. And that was our, I mean, that was kind of what we were trying to copy in the beginning. He showed him all this, and then, you know, it clicked with, with those high-level execs. These are independent contractors. They get hurt too much. They don't come back from injury because they're they're working with you know PTs that want to work with professional athletes, but they're mom and pop PTs. They're they're for car accident victims, workman's comp stuff. You know these are not the best in the world. These are not the people that the Tom Brady's of the world are coming back after blowing knee out badly or working with to come back. And the weights people are missing. Weights people that we know are good are fighting like garbage because they've starve themselves because they don't understand how the body works and they don't have you know qualified dietitians they have you know the biggest biggest ripped guy at their gym saying well you know i ate nothing but sweet potatoes and chicken that's how i did you know so like how can we influence the ufc athlete or at least offer them this influence and then the other piece is and this is something we've grown into especially with covid and the journals and the online presence etc is how can we influence the way the sport of mixed martial arts has changed and evolves and the, the training of mixed martial arts evolves for everyone all right and so i came into the project i heard this was happening and i was just like 
I'm sorry, guys. Do you, do you not know I work here? I've been trying to do this for 20 years. I've been trying to figure out the best way to train for the sport of mixed martial arts. Let's get some smart people. Let's find out what's happening to the body on a physiological, cellular, whatever level when you're actually in the octagon. And more importantly, when you prepare for a fight, like what, what's happening, you know, and, and how can we feed that back information back in a manner that athletes can understand? You know, it was a great, great article about uh, the difference between, you know, I think it was complex training and contrast training made sense to me. It was that, a, you know, you, you did use post activation potentiation in there, which is a little confusing for me. But for the most part, I was able to understand it. Right. And so that's kind of a lot of what I do is like, what are these things and how does that impact? I don't care about post activation potentiation. How does that impact how I train? Should I do this first or that first? You know, just don't. And that's what we want to do, right? So I don't want the philosophical, hey, this is what we're doing. Hey, you know what? We're going to lift real heavy in the beginning, and then we're going to do quicker stuff later. Okay. So contrast training. Got it. Boom. Speaking of uh, smart people, you've put together a fantastic team. You know, you've got Duncan, uh, Bo, Clint, uh, almost like the Avengers of sports science. How did you Ooh, go I like it? it. I like that too. Yeah. <laughs> How did you go about putting it, putting that team together? And yeah, what, well, what yeah. I mean, obviously, I don't even need the second half of the question. You got. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. So you know, once the project kind of became known, uh, you know, obviously getting Duncan was huge. That was kind of a lightning rod. Like when we got him, people were like, "Oh, they're serious. They want to do this right." Um, and then you know, the coolest job in the world. What I spent 2016 doing is going around to gyms, high-level facilities, Olympic training centers all over the world, and just, you know, talking to people and, you know, researching and basically getting a peek under the hood at what they're doing right and wrong and, you know, talking to people on a very, you know, off-the-record type level, like, does that really work? Do I need that thing that glows in the dark and costs 80 grand? No, you don't need that thing. Okay. All right. Got it. Um, you know, so... That, that was the coolest thing. But the other thing is, once we got Duncan, it, it really, think about it. Mixed martial arts is the newest, most dynamic, most exciting sport there is right now because it's so young in its evolution, right? You guys, boxing's over 200 years old. You guys are great boxing trainers, but you will never, you're, level of influence you will ever have on boxing is going to be mitigated by the fact that so much has come before you. There's not a lot of dogma for MMA. Nobody's really saying, hey, this is the right way. There's not, not scientifically nothing. There's very little research on it. 2016, I started looking for research on it. You know, I had like research out of Australia on nine amateur MMA fighters. And I was like, well, this isn't that useful. Um, ironically, we did end up hiring the guy that did that research, which ended up being really cool. But, you know, um, do you want to be a part of figuring out the way to train for a new sport? The, how often do new sports come along, right? This is, you know, one of the major sports. COVID has only made the UFC stronger. It, it's crazy, right? So people saw that as just an opportunity to really make their mark on something. And that's why I got into it, too. It's like, look, this is a puzzle. I've been trying to solve since I found the sport in 2000. I was like, this is what I want to do, 99, 2000. This is the best way to do it. And I've done so many wrong things. 
you know, let me surround myself with the people that really know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. It's brilliant. And, you know, you've created this team and this facility from like going around the world, all world-class facilities. And then the, the performance Institute stands out as like one of the best facilities in the world. It's got uh, hypoxic chambers, underwater treadmill, light therapy, uh, you've got a 3D motion capture on the on the ring as well to analyze sparring. What are the main things that you'd probably make use of the most if if they were available in your career in terms of the equipment, the testing, or um, the staff? So you know, like a, cor- a cortex metabolic heart. You know, what 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 is my body's preferred substrate at what heart rate? Right. So once you know that, it makes you know, that, that fat burning that, you know, what do they call it? List, low distance, blah, blah, slow stuff, whatever. It makes that a lot easier. And then you can kind of figure out your body a little, and then you can even see the changes in your body. If you start eating like a diet, a little higher in carbohydrate, you can, you can kind of, you know, change your body. So that's, what's exciting. Um, you know, I really like just the basic and probably stuff you do isometric metathypole, landmine punch throw, you know, uh, variations of that just to to test yourself along the way to to be able to identify if the program you're doing is working right so you can and i'm sure i think i've heard you guys talk about doing this you can work a little bit of testing into every workout so you have like you know kind of this hey am i progressing is this plan working do i need to you know to kind of take a step back and, and replan this whole thing, right? So I think it's just the, the consistency of testing. All the metabolic stuff was real exciting to me because uh, athletes don't know what they're actually doing to their metabolism. You know, everybody knows if you eat more and consistently that hypothetically your, you know, resting, mono, resting metabolic ratio go up. But when you can actually see that over the course of a month, then you say, okay, that that is, that is, you know, that, that is true. And that is working for me. So I think that's more right. So it's the individualized nature of it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's like taking the guesswork away. And this is really, you know, refreshing to hear from a, a former fighter like yourself. Um, you know, fighters like they've got so, so much going off in terms of their preparation. And but then only a very short window of opportunity to to get it right. And they, then they've got to go into a fight. If, um, like, kind of going back onto your career, would there be anything that you'd do differently in terms of, like, strength and conditioning and nutrition? So something I left out that I'm – kind of my personal thing and what, is that, that, that basically load management, right? Like, workload management, like, am I overtrained? Like, omega wave, stuff like that. Just, just you know – I would do like a vertical jump and kind of a sleep diary that I kind of kept and would try to see um, to kind of measure, but you know, we can measure your damn cortisol levels here, you know, your cortisol testosterone ratio or something like that. Right. So it, it really would be for the purposes of load management to find out how, how much training at what intensity can I do before it becomes unproductive before I start, you know, I, I reach the, you know, law of diminishing returns. Right. And so that's what I would do better, load monitoring. And then, you know, we have stuff like the Omega Wave. And and once you do that for, you know, a month, you can really start to figure it out. The athlete can start to figure out what their body's telling them. 
Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Um, how did you go about that kind of load monitoring before? Did you did you just go and smash every day in the gym? Did you uh, and how did you taper off for the fights? Uh, I, I used the taper I got from Randy Couture, right? So it's sort of like a ten day taper. Um, I think people do that one just because it sounds, it rhymes, you know, 10 day taper, there you go, yeah. a little alliteration there. But, um, you know, you get, you get uh, kind of the same thing we do now. You, you, uh, you, you bang it out for 10, 15 seconds and then walk around till you feel like doing it again, you know, nice warm up, And then uh, um, specifically for the fight, because that's kind of what you're asking, but, but for like my training, as far as did I just bang it out every day? You know, they, they were, you were talking about 13 years of training. So I did it all kind of, I tried it different ways. You know, let me, yeah. let me think about it more tactically. Let me just get after it, you know, and it, it also would matter what coaches am I working with? So one of the things I identified as my personal problem is I trained with a lot of different coaches and teams. So I would train jujitsu in the morning and I would intend for it to be a moderate practice, but it would end up, you know, taking a pretty high physiological toll. And then I would go do strength and conditioning in the evening. And my strength and conditioning coach wasn't hearing that, you know, I'm already a little beat up from this morning. He was like, all right, let, let's get it. So we get it. And now Tuesday, now all of a sudden I'm sparring and the, the you know, the, the load from the day is already taking it on me and we're already at Tuesday. So what I see a lot of athletes do is they go hard Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, lighter day, more technique, drilling, you know, functional movement stuff, et cetera. And, but they'll still go hard enough Monday, Tuesday that, that they end up kind of underloading the rest of the week. So they're still beat up into the week and then they'll maybe get one more good sparring day in. So I did that a lot. Like, let's just go hard. And then by Wednesday, you're like, man, I can't really go hard anymore. And then you go easy and then you just like, well, now I feel good again. And then you go hard again. So you never really, you know, the other thing I did with strength and conditioning that I see a lot is I didn't work. Um, those high-end strength qualities or explosive qualities, whatever you call them, right? I kind of worked always in the middle. So I wasn't working this alactic system. I, I, you know, I was always just kind of in the suck, um, which is what happens when you're training every day, you know, four hours a day, your, your high days, they're not going to be as high as you intended them to be, right? Because you're already a little beat up. So you're down in the middle. And then your low days, you kind of think, I'm, you know, and you end up turning those into high days too, because you feel like your your ego says, "What am I doing here? I'm, I'm here. I might as well just get after it," you know. And then I always had a reputation as being a hard worker, or you know, whatever, training a lot. But I was actually quite lazy about training, right? So the hard part of training for me was, okay, you went live for two minutes. Now stop, and we're gonna drill that technique. You know, we're gonna get reps of that drilling. I never, I never liked drilling. It's like, cool, we drill it. Can we just fight now? Let's fight. Yeah, Let's yeah. fight, bro. And, uh, you know, the, now I realize, and, and I realized it at the end of my career, but maybe it was too late. I did a lot more technical work, you know, 2012 and 2013 than I did a lot in 2006 and seven. And I'm not sure that's the way your career distribution should be, right? I don't think you should be working your technique at the end of yeah. your career. You should probably have been working that the whole time. Yeah. I've got one more question about your like kind of uh, your career and everything like that. Talking about that that technical side, being a little bit more mindful about what you're doing. I, I listened to um, one of your interviews 
around that performance interview. I think it's the one with uh, Joe Rogan where you're talking about the video cameras over the ring and getting the most possible out of the sparring activity and getting that feedback. Now, in boxing, that isn't done as much as what uh, what we'd like as sports scientists, strength conditioning coaches, because there, there's a stigma of, oh, sparring should be secret, not not like not uh, not video because they're scared of like kind of secrets getting out or anything like that. Do you have, do you have like kind of any of them kind of conflicts at the PI when people are videoing? Certainly, and, stuff? and that and that yeah, and and that's one of the things I would I would say you know, you know, HIPAA is great and all, but I'm less concerned about HIPAA and more concerned about somebody watching that every time you know, I drop my hand or I don't defend that calf kick well at all. You know, I'm more worried about that getting out there than, you know, my, my joint doesn't rotate as much as it's supposed to. Right. So yeah, that's huge. But, but I'm the guy that deletes that. So yeah. um, you, you have a lot of guys now, you can do it on your iPhone. You don't need, you don't need dart fish. You don't need, you know, uh, the, whatever we have here that, yeah. you know, to do the fancy football analysis thing. You, you really just need to record your practice, record your training. And I see more and more guys do it. You see, you know, their, their corners or the stands with like the cameras that will actually follow the action now. You see everybody recording it now. And, and, you know, you watch it back. And then your next practice, in my opinion, uh, which is always right, ask me, uh, you, should, you should start to correct that. What did you see that you did not like? Let's yes. fix that. Let's, let's, let's think about some drills. All right. You, you went straight back and you didn't cut any angles. Every time the guy came at you, you end up with your back on the fence. All right. You know what we're going to do today? We're going to work cutting. We're going to work cutting to our, uh, towards his weak side again and again. Right. Um, you know, so just, just stuff like that. Right. And, and I think that's, I think if you sell it to the tactical coach, I think they'll see it, you know, watch it once and then destroy it because you know, your opponents watched your fights. And you think about the 10 round fight, you, you, you let some tells out there in the 10 round fight, right? Under the duress, fatigued, um, you know, makes sense, right? So don't, don't be too afraid of the sparring footage. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of our guys do that anyway, you know, they'll watch it back and uh, review it. But, you know, we've, we've talked a, a little bit about the, the physiology, a little bit about mechanics and a little bit about, um tech and you know and uh, a little bit about tactical analysis there but i'm interested to get your take on the psychological aspects of fighting you know some people say it's 90 percent mental is the fight game i just want to know what your thoughts are on that and you know how did you get ready for battle um you know so first of all it's veterans day here it's not battle it's a fight there's a referee you know shit goes wrong um it's not even like the physical injury I think people are worried about. It's, uh, it's your ego, right? It is a tough thing to do. Like at the end of the day, losing to another man in, in unarmed combat is the, the crux of humiliation, right? So it's your ego. It's the world to see. Um, I got embarrassed by Anderson Silva about 12 years ago. I still hear about it at least once a week. Um, but, you know, it, it you gotta, so you gotta find some fun in it. Right. And at the end of the day, you know, I, I'll always ask a guy or a gal, if I'm talking to him the week of the fight, like, are you nervous? 
Of course you're fucking nervous because this is important because this is a big deal because you've been working for months for this very day. So yeah, you're nervous and yeah, you feel weird and your body's doing weird stuff you'd rather it didn't do. But at the same time, it's all in how you interpret those signals, right? That's your body getting ready for war. Like you just said, that's your body. Your body knows you're going to be in a fight. Get out of your head. Let yourself go. Your body is going to do the things that you've programmed it to do again and again. Uh, I see fights where guys get dinged and you know they're not all there. And what do they start doing? They start shooting or they they immediately defend themselves or they turn the right way. They don't know they're doing it. They've just programmed themselves to do it for so long, right? So, you know, that your, your, your body knows what's going on, right? Um, and if you, you know, if you like to meditate, if you like to do these things, I love all those practices. It's very individualized, obviously. The one thing I'll say is, don't change things at the last minute. Whatever you've done, continue to do that. And one of the things I used to do in boxing that was great uh, when, I, when I got beat up a lot is I would drive two hours to Atlanta to a high-level boxing gym where I knew almost no one, and I would spar there with no nobody, just me. And so the, the travel to sparring in a foreign gym, that – that amps you up that prepares you right to wear that weight on fight day because you are going to be a little apprehend or apprehensive on fight day right it, it's natural you're supposed to it is an important moment for you losing really sucks but if you've worn that weight for the last six saturdays and you drove you know down to a gym where you didn't have a lot of friends and you sparred hard you're going to be ready for that mentally and that's that's uh, part of the thing right how hard do you have to spark to develop the confidence yet not hurt yourself, right? And that, I think a lot of us are looking for that, right? So I want to spar hard. I want to develop confidence. But, you know, at the end, I actually want to work with my guys that I know aren't going to hurt me. Um, the other thing, so that's something else I like to do. And the other thing I had to do was I had my same routine. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Hoosiers about American basketball, I had the same routine that I always did pre-sparring that I did pre-fight and I did it the whole last week, right? So routine makes the extraordinary ordinary. Um, you know, you're going to go through this routine. You're going to think the same thoughts. You're going to, you know, think tactical thoughts. And then once you actually get in the fight, anybody will tell you that once you're fighting, it takes care of itself. You know, um, you know, you got your flow states or your associative phase or whatever you want to call it, you know, shit just starts clicking because you've done it before. If it doesn't start clicking, that's okay. The way I look, like to look at it, and it didn't always click for me in fights. Sometimes it just happened. The technique came out that was supposed to be there. Sometimes I would see it and be too late. That's okay. That's that's part of getting to that that autonomic phase, right? It's, 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 it's the path to it. So I like to explain it like this, you know, uh, never climbed a mountain, but I saw free solo makes me an expert on mountain climbing you're not thinking about winning or losing, right? It's those little goals. You're thinking about getting your left leg outside of his right leg. You are thinking about your distance to land the right hand. You are thinking about where your hand goes, where your foot goes, you know, is do I have the right amount of chalk on my hand? Your next hand hold, your next foot hold. And once you start thinking about that, you'll kind of slip into that, that flow state, right? Where you're just, you're just moving, you're just touching. Absolutely. I'm interested to know what you would what you were thinking about and how you were preparing for those spas on that two hour journey. Was was there anything yeah. anything during that time when you were alone with yourself in the car that you were you know you were working through? 
you know, I, I don't know why I would do it. I think, um, I think I just knew that it was going to pay off that because I would be genuinely nervous. And I remember, um, uh, you know, sparring pretty hard one time and uh, it's a two hour drive. It took me four hours to get back home. And I had no idea why it had taken me four hours. And then I remember another hard spar where, uh, you know, I went and ate and I threw my keys away and I was stuck at this restaurant for like another three hours looking for my keys because I had thrown them in the trash because you're so like, uh, I was threw my keys away on the plate with the trash food. Um, but, you know, it, it, I just knew that, that this was what it meant to be a professional fighter and that I needed to work with people that were a little bit better than me once a week, sometimes. Uh, the one thing I would definitely do is less rounds when I went. See, I, I thought about it like I drove two hours. I'm driving back two hours. I should get 10 rounds in. No, no. That, that's the other thing, you know, like a progressive load. I really like what boxers do is you guys will start out with like two rounds and three rounds and four rounds. And then you get up and you touch 10 rounds. And then you start. So you only it's like a marathon. You don't run a marathon every day to run a marathon. But I did. Uh, UFC guys do because it's a 25 minute or 15 minute fight. So you think, well, I'll just, I'll do 30 minutes of sparring, six rounds is what a lot of guys will do. But, you know, I, I like the boxing mentality where you kind of work up and then you taper off to the fight. Yeah. So what, so, you know, you mentioned you did a, a, a million things, you know, wrong, but you obviously clearly did a lot of things right. And you, you're seen as a, a pioneer in terms of the, the approach that you took to training. You know, what was it that made you, you know, seek out those different um, styles of training experiences and, you know, what were, what were the, the things that kind of you think made the difference? No, oh, I mean, I'll put that back on you. Anybody that does kind of what we do, whether it be coaching or fighting, you want to get better. You want to be around people that are better. And even if that's sparring with them or taking your, your fighters to another gym and kind of seeing what they're doing. You know, one of the things when I was fighting, I was always so interested to see the countdown show, which is the lead up to the fight, because I want to see if they're doing it like I'm doing it, right? Like, do, I'm sure you guys wonder, like, are they, how much, how, how often are they working out? What, what drills are they doing? Like, what yeah. is their strength and conditioning like? You know, what days are they doing their strength and conditioning on? You know, I have a question for you guys though. All the boxers you work with, how much, like how many times a week do you get to work with them? So I'll do most of the delivery. I'll do uh, two strength conditioning sessions a week. Uh, that is like basically your weights, deadlifts, squats, do core work as well. And then we do three uh, high intensity interval training sessions. Uh, that's either um, like anaerobic or aerobic dominant. Um, and then we'll do like one active recovery day as well. Um, sometimes this is just over text, uh, give them the program what to do. Uh, because a lot of our athletes, they come to Sheffield and then they actually live elsewhere. They live like down, um, like down towards London. Um, and then they come up to, to us within the week. Uh, well, come and work with their, with their coach. So yeah, so that, so it's around about, uh, five sessions that we control in a week. So I've always thought that's, that's pretty good. Actually, that's, that's yeah. pretty good. 
I've always thought that the most qualified person to manage, like the, the person that knows in, the most in the room about physiology and manage, managing the performance load was the strength coach. That's what I've always thought. You know, I, I zero physiology in most technical coaches, right? Uh, they just know what they've done in the past and what worked for them when they were 25 up to your 32 now, it doesn't work anymore. How much do you guys get to input the load and the training schedule for the technical coaches? Um, it depends on the technical coach, whether they, whether they want that advice or whether they don't. Um, the key thing that I do is take down their loads for the boxing session. So that is RPE and duration, the most simplest kind of training load that I can, that I can get from the boxer. And that's literally through a Google form. Um, they report what they've done in that, whether that's sparring, bags, pads, or just extended shadow. Um, and then they tell me the, the heart rate, so what they spent in uh, zone five and zone four. So the red zone, 90% to 100% max heart rate, and between 80 and 90% max heart rate. And then so from, they're wearing heart heart rate monitors when they're doing their technical work. They're, yeah, yeah, because yeah, because it's a full holistic approach there. So that's awesome. For example, right? yes, for example, yesterday I had um, I had an athlete that did some sparring in the morning, and I was like, right, what did you do in the red zone um, today? He said twenty minutes in the red zone. So. Uh, I was like, right. So for his conditioning session, does you he need to go? Forty more minutes in the red. <laughs> <Yeah>. Does he? <laughs> no. Does he need to go? Does he need a really tough session? So the circuit that I put together was supposed to be four or five sets, um, but then when I actually delivered the session, when he got to three sets, he'd already done eight minutes in the red zone. It's just like, right. That's that's your lot for today. So so that's the reason why we take the heart rates during. Boxing, that's right why we have a like kind of holistic approach because the, the boxing coach is the man in charge. Um and we, we adapt around their training. Um we we're there to try and get the most out of them with the limitations of the sport, which is high training loads, calorie restriction, um movement restrictions in terms of like um their ability to perform the exercises. Um and then also just the the facilities that they've got as well. So and that's part of it. We you know to even though we haven't got control of it, we can we have better control of what we do and what we can get out of them. For for what it's worth, you know, we have a very similar very similar limit limitations in the performance institute, right? It's yeah. your technical training, and then you know how do we add the strength conditioning? How do we sneak the PT in? How do we manage your calories around that technical training, which is your priority, right? Yeah. Um, the, the one thing I'll say is that you can get the athletes to start buying in themselves because they're here without their technical coaches and they will influence their technical coach, right? So once you start telling them things and they start saying, you're right, I do feel better when I do this, right? don't feel as good when I do what my coach says. But when you say, so it, it starts, you know, and it can be a painful conversation with, with the technical coach, but once you get the athlete on board, okay, this, this actually works for my body. This is what I need to do. Um, it's easy because we have no, the UFCPI has no financial interest in them. 
Like we, yeah. we're free. Everything. There's no charges, nothing. We're not trying to make a penny off these guys and gals. We're just trying to make them the best them they can be. Right. So I think when you kind of approach with that mindset, the, the technical coaches realize, Hey, look, they're not trying to undermine me. They're trying to help me. And I exactly. think that's, that's, you know, huge. And I think, um, you know, money complicates everything. Fortunately, we don't have to deal with the money aspect of it, which is just a blessing, you know? Absolutely. Alan, what are your thoughts about like a performance manager role? We've talked about this quite often, haven't we? I, I agree with Forrest, I think, because, you know, you're, you're in a unique position. Um, you know, m- my role is, uh, I suppose, very much in the background. You know, I'm the guy that reads the journals, does, the, does this, does that, does the testing. and He's the guy who knows about post-activation potentiation, be able to tell you everything about it. It's funny you know, if you should say that. I had um, a meeting with a student this morning, um, you know, who, who was on the, the master's course, and the, and the student was like, they're talking about post-activation potentiation in these lectures, and I have no idea what it is. <laughs> so oh. we, had to, uh, we, we had to break it down a little bit. Just gave him like your previous video. So it was like, boom, there you go. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Yeah, you do something heavy, you have a little bit of a rest, and then you do something really fast. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Or you do something heavy, you don't have much rest, and then you do something, you know, uh, what what they do here a lot is they'll do like a, a trap bar deadlift, like sets of three or four, and then they'll kind of basically walk over and do like a banded jump, but not banded to the ground, banded up. So you're nervous, you know, kind of like the, the a little like, bit like the bracketing theory, right? Where you're going, speed. boom, you're working the strength and then boom, you're working high and neurological. So you're working that, that kind of two edges. And, you know, some athletes, the coach will tell them that and they're like, oh, okay, cool. Send me that article. Or just, yeah, let, let's talk about that. And some athletes are like, just tell me what to do, coach. Just, just tell me what's going to make me faster, you know? And, and, and that's another thing, right? I'm sure you... Uh, you know, Danny, I'm sure you get that a lot, right? Some guys will just sit there and pick your brain and some guys are like, yeah, all right, whatever. Yeah. One thing I have about boxing, um, do a lot of your guys still insist on doing like the road work before training, like three or five miles in the mornings? Um, not really. Uh, there's some like that, that uh, like a little bit more. If the, I'll take an example. I'll just start working with, uh, Lerone Richards, who's a British champion, is around about uh, I think he's twenty eight years old. So he's been in the in the game for quite a while. So he has his like kind of longer runs that he likes to do, and it's been it's been a little bit of a for, like formative like phase, just like trying to get him from doing them kind of longer runs to doing some high intensity work. But he's another one that is just just like you said whatever trust in whatever what what we put out there in front of him uh from even from like we were doing like a landmine squat the other day and i said do you feel like you can go heavy on that and he goes you decide you decide i'm like i'm wanting <laughs> feedback from them he says i'll just yeah, right. I'll, I'll just do whatever you tell me i'm like but i'm wanting to know whether it feels comfortable enough do you feel yeah. do you feel strong enough doing it or is it too heavy for you uh so yeah so like there's some that do like the longer runs but i think that High intense interval training for boxing is is coming on like leaps and bounds. Whether that's doing the treadmill sessions, curve runs, or doing the track sessions, I think a lot more people are buying into it now. 
or even even you know what we do a lot of uh, with the Shanghai Academy is the explode on the mitts with everything for 10 seconds and then shake it out, shake it out, you know, yeah. just move easy. Um, and if you think about the sport of boxing, right, you break it down, it's usually kind of pitter patter, pitter patter, bah, 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 explosion for, you know, uh, for, for, you know, relatively short amount of time. And then yeah. it goes to, you know, more movement, more, you know, I'm, I'm whatever. And then another explosive bout, right? So, uh, the sport of MMA is eight to 12 seconds of high intensity explosiveness, followed by two to three times, uh, you know, minimal, minimal, right? So like we go to, we go to clinch. I get that initial takedown. You, your butt hits the fence. You get back up. Now we've, we've been going hard for 10, 12 seconds, right? Now we're kind of in a stall position. Maybe I try to sneak an elbow in, maybe I knee you in the thigh, but you know, basically it, it's, it's a, a, an orange, right? And then maybe we break at distance. So another thing we're able to do is like 62% of all UFC fights now occur at distance. And that's that's trending upward, which means what? Which means that you're going to kind of be, your reaction speed is more important and that you're going to be in, in, you know, more of an aerobic state moving around. And then you're going to need to quickly transition into that, bam, alactic creatine phosphate system, whatever, go like a son of a bitch state and then pull back and then rest. So a lot of the stuff is like getting your heart rate up and then getting it back down in that, you know, 20 seconds of medium work, right? So we, we do a lot of that. And then we base our, you know, interval training off what's actually happening in fights. And then one thing we've done really well is stratify the fights across weight class. Because one of the things I will say, and I'll call him by name, I saw Daniel Cormier doing the same workout and strength and conditioning plan with a, uh, 135 pound kickboxer and they're doing the same program and that that i saw that maybe 2016 when we were building this place and i thought yeah. why is it why is a 240 pound wrestler that's 37 eight years old doing the same workout as a 25 year old kickboxer this should not happen these guys have polar opposite needs you know so uh again the point there was weight classes right so your your heavyweights don't need to do what your lightweights do and vice versa yeah i did some uh <clears throat> analysis um some performance analysis uh not longer when one of our guys was, was challenging for the, the featherweight um world title and the mean duration of high intensity activity that preceded a technical knockout was 14 seconds and then there was a about the same yeah, so yeah, a lot of um most most of the um durations were between like 14 and 10, 11 seconds. Yeah. Uh, and then there was one um Leo Santa Cruz who launches an you know an absolute attack of 20 23 seconds, throws a ridiculous amount of punches yeah. for 23 seconds, and the ref jumps in and, and stops it. But yeah, pretty similar to be fair, and, and that's in championship yeah, fight yeah. as well. It's pretty yeah. The, the other thing is the punch, kick, takedown attempts volume, right? Like how many punches are attempted and landed, significant versus insignificant. You know, um, you should be maybe throwing five or so percent more punches in practice than you're actually going to throw in a fight. And I think that's, that's based off, it's actually based off a study I read about, you know, attacking from Taekwondo, basically your hesitance. Right. So you're going to be a little more hesitant to attack in a fight than you would on the mitts or in sparring. So obviously your sparring volume and, and mitt work is going to be a little 
you know, just, it's going to be a higher volume, right? Because in the actual fight, there's no, there's no attack without a consequence. And the consequence could be you getting knocked out. Yeah, that makes complete sense, doesn't it? Yeah, I've never, never um, really, really come across that before. Have you, have you Danny, that like, like a five, what was like a five to ten percent rule, really? Because, like, yeah, like you say, oh, no. I just made that up. You just made it up. No, <laughs> no it's just, it's not, it's, it's not a hard and fast rule. It's yeah. if you think about it, your volume in training is a lot more than your volume in the fight. And I mean, per round, per minute per exchange even, right? So you might in 16 ounce gloves with shin guards and headgear, you might have an explosive impact between two good guys that last 20 seconds and nobody gets knocked out because they're not in 10 ounce gloves and they have shin guards on, right? If they were in four ounce gloves, one of those guys may have lost consciousness or gotten cut or gotten knocked down, et cetera, right? So you're always gonna have a little more volume in practice. Um, so when it's controlled, I think you need to really work on that explosive. And, and this is me speaking because I had no pop. I could punch pretty hard for all day, but I had no knockout power, no true explosion. And it's because I never trained it. I always trained in the middle, so I never really got good at that. Yeah, I think like talking about like kind of percentages over kind of punch volumes reminds me of um, when we had an athlete, Jordan Gill. Uh, he was in his like first title fight, Commonwealth title. And in the fourth round of that fight, he hurt his opponent. and But then he couldn't get him out of there. But he, he just unloaded on him. I think he was about 80% increase in punch volume in the minute. So the massive spike. And he said that he felt like his lactate went up to about 19, 20 millimole per litre but they were just like that when you're talking about that um about conditioning methods doing the sprint interval you crushed all the thresholds right yeah and then exactly. and then you think about the endorphins in that as well when yeah. that once those leave and you realize that the guy's coming out for the next round you're like you know in boxing yeah. they would say he punched himself out or he punched his arms out yeah. right but but like you know it's you know he he crossed the you know yeah. VT2 or he crossed that lactic threshold, it's going to yeah. take him, you know, I guess if, if you cross your lactic threshold, it actually takes like five to seven minutes to actually recover to do it mm. again. But he's got to sort of aerobically get back in there and, and start touch, 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 move his feet and let us, you know, let us. Yeah, he, recover, he recovered well and got the, uh, got the knockout in seventh round, but he yeah. was like, he'd, he'd been on the program for about three years then. We took him through the 30 second max out sprints that all our boxers hate and they realize, oh, this is the reason why we, we, we've done this kind of training because he felt like his body was physically prepared to go to do that. Whereas like in a spa, that wouldn't happen in a spa. If you've hurt your opponent, you, you kind of like let him, you know, have, have the kind of um, let, let him recover, uh, take, take a step back. Uh, you wouldn't kind of unload and try and go for the finish over like a minute, 90 second assault. So it's like for conditioning methods is to like try and prepare for that unknown and something yeah. that, something that um, I picked up on what Duncan said. And it doesn't go down. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sometimes then we'll just bring a new partner in. Yeah. You know, oh, he's hurt. Like, you know, sometimes you have the guys pummel and take it easy. And usually the guy that hurt the guy 
is cool with that because he's a little tired anyway. Uh, you, so you just have him kind of pummel and, and maybe even pull it. We'll definitely pull the guy that got hurt. You know, there's no yeah. point. To get, and then put somebody else in. So, you know, or pull, pull him and have him do some intense bag work, right? And, and that's why I think there's so much, uh, there's so many drills and bag work that you can create this, this, you know, you can, you can, you know, get your alactic and glycolytic energy system work in um, that I just never thought about, right? So like something I like to do is you have to get out in our sport, get off the bottom, off the cage, and then throw like a five or six punch strike, I should say, combination. And then you can you can rest for a second, but you're getting out from under somebody that's trying to hold you down and beat you up. And you have to get out from under them, you leave them, and then you go, you hit the mitts, and then you'll go back. And that's what we call a shark bait, right? So everybody, everybody has like, you know, different types of shark bait they do, but that that's ours either, you know, and, and it can be, you have to take a guy down and the round doesn't end until you take him down. And then when it does end, somebody comes at you and you have to, you know, defend yourself and, and sort of punch back. So one day I'll, I'll, I'll like actually video these drills and put them out into the world one day. Yeah. We've seen quite a few, haven't we? Duncan's um, um, done a few things for us, sent us a few, a few things over of uh, stuff like that, and some of the, the conditioning drills that he does is one you know, a lot a lot of groundwork um, and some work with some bungees as well. I think I've seen and some pretty cool stuff. I think yeah, you know the, the bungees are great. The bungees are great. All this stuff is great. It absolutely, from a scientific level, works. Like you, you guys know, you these, these bungees, what it's proven to work, but the switch over time is always you know at the end ease of access will always win the day right and if i can't get that on my fighter if i'm a coach if i can't get that on my guy and off my guy very quickly then i'm not going to use it right so it, it just that's what whenever somebody comes up with a great innovation for fighting i say cool can i get this on and off in a minute round you know, can, can I do it between rounds or, you know, maybe we do it for 15 minutes and it takes two minutes to get off. That's fine. But, but, you know, if it takes like six minutes to get the guy in and out of there, it's just, it's not a functional piece of equipment, even if the science is 100% beautiful. Absolutely. You've got to, you've got to have that balance between what, what's practical, you know, logistics, you know, and then, and then the impact of like, even say, even if it's, you know, hundred percent effective, it's not yeah. if it's not fitting the environment, it's not fitting the environment, is it? It's not it's not gonna have that transfer. Well, and you know, it might be something like Danny was saying earlier earlier. It's dependent on who's delivering that service, right? Like if Danny, he's gonna do it, he's gonna make it happen, he's gonna, but if it's like an old MMA coach like me, he's gonna be like, Yeah, that seems hard. <laughs> Let's just do it without it. Absolutely. Just, uh, just changing the uh, conversation uh, a little bit on a tangent, uh, a big thing in MMA is uh, the weight cut. And you've probably been asked this a hundred, maybe a thousand times. Um, what are the kind of implications of a weight cut, like kind of from when you was doing it back in the day? How's it kind of evolving and what work still needs to be done to make sure that you know, these weight cuts are safe. All right. So the biggest thing is I want to um, kind of be a jerk here and put it back on the fighter. Don't take fights. You can't fight Two, you're a professional athlete. You're not like, it, this is not like, Oh, I fought. I worked hard for 12 weeks. Now I'm going to take a vacation. 
you're a professional athlete. Take a week, take two weeks. You should be eating like a professional athlete. You should be walking around at the weight that you compete at. And I don't mean 170, right? If I'm if I fight in 170 pounds, right? So the welterweight class, I'm not saying you should walk around at 170. I'm saying you should walk around at whatever you're going to step into the octagon at or whatever you're going to wake up on fight day at. Usually you lose a little weight. So you you make weight, you rehydrate. So I would get up to like 225 in the morning, but I could never get to the octagon at more than like 222, 221, right? So you kind of, you know, you, you hydrate and then you kind of whatever. Um, so at, why, why are you walking around outside of five pounds of your actual fight weight? The other thing is uh, that I had problems with is I would walk around at 230 pounds, you know, just eating like relatively healthy and feeling good. And then the last three weeks or 20 day, I had like a 20 day diet I did and it wasn't super calorie restrictive. Believe it or not, I was still eating 3000 calories on my diet, like on my weight descent. I was eating like 3,100 calories, like for the 20 days to lose fat. And it was still working, but um, yay metabolism. Um, I felt weak. You know, I, I, I remember Jay Huron pushing me around before a fight and being like, oh my God, what's going on? Two weeks ago, I was throwing this guy around like it was nothing. Now, right before the fight, he's moving me around. This guy fights at 170 pounds and he's out muscling me. Oh my God, this is, you know, it, it was almost like traumatic for me. And that's when I figured out, look, man, you can't train at 235 because that's a different body than at 221. You're going to step in the actual octagon with, right? So, so it's very simple. You back end it. What weight can I comfortably perform in the octagon or in the boxing ring at? This is the weight I need to walk around. I'm not too worried about that 20 hour period where I'm, well, it's not 20 hours, it's about 72 hours, right? So first, boom, cut the fiber, cut the salt, cut the water, make the weight, and then put it back in there, put the salt, put the water, and then, you know, protein, carbs, whatever. But, but you know, it's, um, yeah, I'm less concerned about that and more concerned about why you're walking around at 210 pounds if you fight at 185. Have you ever been able to actually compete at 210 pounds? And if you did, did you feel good? So one time in my career, I fought Elvis Sinisic. I was 226 pounds the morning of the fight. I felt horrible. I felt like I had a cannonball in my stomach. I had gotten all the food and fluid in, but it had not left my stomach. I had like the fat abs, you know, where you're like your belly's sticking out, but you got the abs on top. And I was like, oh boy, this is, this is not good. So I knew after that that for me, my ideal weight was under 225. So the last, you know, couple of years of my career, I figured it out, I walked around at 225, you know, anytime I wasn't injured, I was training, I kept my weight around 225. That way, if I did want to take a short notice fight, I could do that without destroying myself ahead of time, right? So be a professional, right? Um, something, something guys here always say, Bo Sandoval is the first guy I heard say, the strength coach here, 365 day fight camp. You're, you're a professional athlete, man. You're a professional fighter in the UFC. That's amazing. You know, don't, don't like, you're not a, a schlub. You go on, you know, two week vacation and you gain 10 pounds. That's like, that's unnecessary, man. That's like regular people in regular life. Don't get to do that. And then I say, look, man, Olympic athletes, they do this for four years to compete once. You only, yeah. you know, so it's different level, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> so, the, the 
the PI in in Vegas was, you know, it was set up exclusively to work with the 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 UFC athletes who are at the top of their game now. And then a few years later, maybe two years later, you then I, I saw on on Dunk's Instagram this massive Shanghai facility that that's popped up, and that's that's more of a a developmental. Can you, can you just talk us through a little bit about, about the plans, uh, future plans? Right. So <clears throat> you think about anywhere you want to grow the market. You want to, what do you want to do? I'm going to say it again. You want to evolve the natural evolution of the sport. So you go, you find the best Chinese athletes and you give them access to the best training and it, it, it becomes a cultural shift, right? So you take 20 or 30 of those fighters as the UFCPI has done. All of a sudden they start winning fights. Everybody says, what these academy kids is doing is working. And you know, the great thing is we'll tell you what the academy kids are doing. We'll, we'll give you their schedule. We'll tell you how we're training. There's no secret. We want everybody in China to get better um, or, or to come into PI and to learn it. And then, and then you think about, you have guys, what do retired fighters do? They coach. So you have a guy, he comes to the PI, he ends up, hey man, he gets hurt, he retires. Now he has that information that he learned in the academy that, that he can kind of run his school with. And, you know, it hadn't really happened yet, but once a guy kind of graduates or flunks out of the academy, whatever way you want to look at it, they, they can still get information on the training, on what they want to do from the academy, right? So again, it, it's going to be more impactful. It's going to raise, you know, what is it, the all, all ships rise when the tide floods or some nonsense like that, right? So you're trying to, you're trying to make everybody better. Um, the other thing they've done and that, that I get to help with, because they, they do a lot of the training themselves, it's hard to kind of, you know, converse with somebody on the other side of the world. But what are the norms for the UFC? What are the strength norms? What are the weight norms? What are the performance norms? Metrics that come from, you know, five metrics, 30, 27. So what are the norms in the UFC in the last three years? So in the current snapshot of UFC, that's what we want the academy kids to be able to achieve, Right that's their goal and you know there's already academy kids that are that are you know stronger quicker faster than ufc athletes you know and and once they get that technical skill set they'll be you know they'll be the next generation of ufc so it's just a jump start and anywhere you do a performance institute like that it's going to jump start that that uh you know that level of fighter right an old boxing adage i remember my boxing coach telling me is money goes where the talent is or talent goes where the money, excuse me. So talent goes where the money and notoriety is. And now that there's money and notoriety in the UFC, it's on TV in China. People are like, Oh, that that's a valid option. And, and I love guys like, like Walt Williams, uh, you know, I'm just like, or Walt uh, Harris he's fighting. He's fighting. I don't know. He's fighting. He just fought. Um, you know, he's like, you know, basically four inches shy of being in the NBA. What does he want to do? He wants to be a professional fighter, right? You know, so you start getting those guys, uh, the, the Chinese Olympians that were like this close to being in, you know, competing for the Chinese Olympic team in wrestling. And all of a sudden we teach that guy some good jits and some good ground and pound. And all of a sudden, whoa, you got a real, you know, you got the Chinese Khabib on your hands. Yeah. So, so that's the idea. Again, it's such a beautiful thing because when you create that, it, a performance institute it becomes its own talent pathway and i'm sure you guys i've seen it in the uk with the, with the under 19 soccer academies right so i kind of see it in man city right once you create that 
oh, okay, well, this kid came from where I'm from. He played in the under-19s league, and now he's in, you know, I forget what it is. Not the MLS. That's what we have here. The real soccer, real football proper (laughs) that you guys have in Europe. And, you know, it starts like, oh, man, I want to do that. It becomes a, a, uh, you know, a viable career option. Yeah. But, um, Forrest, cause, because I'm a geek and I like this stuff, is that when's the next cross-sectional journal coming out? And is the, is the um, Chinese data going to be in that? Uh, well, the, so yes and no. A lot of the stuff that they've used in the Chinese Academy will be in that. But as far as the athletes in the Academy... They, they kind of come and go, um, you know, like they might, they might graduate out, make it to the UFC. They might, you know, another combine. And that's another thing exciting. We got to create the first MMA combine. Now, you know, that, that's pretty awesome. But um, that's amazing. Not the first. Uriah Faber created the first, the, yeah. the second, but the best. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, we, uh, anyway, um, it's it's really targeted at the UFC fighter, right? So you target the journal for the elite of the elite, right? But, you know, do the same techniques and tactics not work on a lower level? They do. They absolutely do, right? So, uh, again, you know, I want the academy to be reverse engineered from the UFC champion status to, to that way. But it, it comes out um, comes out real soon. We will send you a digital copy at no cost because that's that's part of the, the the PI way, right? Putting all these journals out for free and and giving you all this sweet sweet data for free. We very much appreciate it. Thank you very much. And now that we've got guys like Roman and Duncan shaping the data that the UFC keeps on the UFC athlete, you know the 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 ability to you know I wanted to know things like punches, takedowns, kicks, you know, but. You know, once you get to that next level, the guys like Duncan, Roman, the 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 staff here, you know, Heather, etc. Um, they uh, you know, they they just have a whole different eye and view, kind of more like yourself, of hey, well, this this is actually what impacts how many kicks that guy's able to throw. Oh, okay. Yeah, we need to know that too then. Yeah, put that one in. Keep that. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a good thing. It's fantastic. Yeah, and it's all about having an impact on the sport, and you can see that you're having that impact. Um you know, a lot of strength and conditioning coaches try and keep their like kind of methods or the data in house, but I, th- I always believe in trying to share it, whether that's general or uh, individual athlete, to show a case study, show how effective a training method can be. That was the old boxing way, and that was the way I grew up when I actually yeah. went and paid money to go to boxing and kickboxing seminars to learn their secrets. Um, Social media has destroyed that pay model. Yeah. Now, instead of keeping it secret as long as you can, like the Gracies did for years and years, you had to go join and, and actually physically do it to learn. Uh, same with all the old boxing coaches, the way they hold, they don't want anybody to know. Um, now, the our generation, what they do is they, they just like, look, it's going to get out there. Let me be the first to post it doing this training technique right so then we see it and that that also causes the sport to evolve and with so many fights and so much you know with with those clips of the fights being on social media we're all seeing these techniques like oh the slip two three okay that's how we did that or or the footwork there's so many people out there analyzing it that this sport just constantly all sports get get better and better and better right uh the difference is the ufc 
came of age in the era of social media. So for us, the, you know, the sweet submission highlight or the jump knee highlight, that's, you know, that's what we're used to seeing. And then guys like myself and you would say, okay, what happened in the 10 seconds before that jump knee that allowed him to get it? And then, you know, everybody has access to that too. And then you got like, I didn't, I didn't like boxing growing up. I hated it. I thought it was dumb. I never saw it. There's nowhere to watch it in the States on basic TV when I was a kid. You know, I, if, if somebody would have showed me real boxing, I would have loved it, but it, there was nowhere to watch it. I feel cheated. I didn't find out about it until I was 20 years of old, 20 years of age. And I was like, oh, let me do a tough man contest. That seems fun. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting how you say now, our MMA and UFC is a relatively new sport. And so there's no dogma attached to it. And also the social media aspects as well. So the, it's like not, it's not being held back by kind of any traditions. What do you think the biggest change is in MMA since you first started in 2000 to uh, 20 years later, uh, 2020? It's hard to identify the biggest change, right? So the, um, the changes that occur, because there's lots of little changes, right? The striking volume has gone up. So when I was first started fighting, I was one of the few guys that used a set up jab. Mostly people wanted to throw power punches. So the volume of strikes thrown has gone up. The activity has gone up. The parody and matchmaking has gone up. The conditioning of the fighters has gone up. So everything, there's more of everything, right? And, and the ability to be specialized in one discipline and, you know, kind of sans other disciplines, that's gone away, right? So everybody, even like Khabib, Khabib, every time you see him, he's punching mitts and sparring, right? But mm. at the end of the day, he wrestles in his fights because that's where he knows he's going to win. But he has good striking. You know what I'm saying? So, um, yeah. And then, then the next biggest sport is kind of more like, well, now people are fighting more at distance than ever before. They're gradually starting to fight more and more at distance. And, um, you know, so how does that change things? Well, I need a better setup. I need to, you know, I need, I need to work my reaction speed more, right? On the ground, reaction speed is not as important. Uh, in a clinch, not as important. Uh, out, that first, that first step becomes more important. And now I need to look at how do I, how do I, how do I make my entries for my takedown? How do I, I break that kind of neutral plane, right? So, so those are, you know, that's where the sport is right now. In five years from now, when we talk, it'll be somewhere else. Absolutely. So it, the sport is progressing, but the the training is evolving at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many times you see a great move, like a great foot sweep or something. And uh, Tuesday in practice, what are we doing? Do that foot sweep. That yeah. foot sweep, the guy just did in the main event, right? You know, yeah. like, oh, man, that was sweet. We're going to do that sort of practicing today, you know? And that's, you know, it, boom, boom, boom. That's happening faster and faster. Fantastic. Forrest, that's been, it's been an absolute pleasure to to speak to you uh, and to have you on the podcast. Um, just to round it up, we do have um, a special feature. It's called 12 times 3. We're, we're keeping it with boxing. So 12 times 3-minute rounds. We've got twelve. We've got twelve questions in inside Are there three minutes. Twelve round fights. There's twelve round fights still. They're not all ten. No, yeah, they're all twelve rounds. So, do you, yeah, that's one of the things. 
um, you know, so the UFC is safer than boxing. And uh, a lot of that actually just has to do with time. Yeah. It's like, you know, the, the ring desk, whatever, that's gone down since yeah. the fights went from 15 to 12 rounds. So they may move them down to 10 because, you know, at the end of the day, volume is important. And then one of the things that happened happens throughout the fight is acute dehydration throughout mm -hmm. the fight while you're sustaining head trauma. Sorry, I was just on a, a ringside physicians conference and they said all that fancy stuff and I thought I'd say it to you. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Well, yeah, because like, if you think of some of our guys' sweat rates are like ridiculous, like three and a half liters an hour, like three liters. And you, so you should be measuring them per round. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously. Because if you're fighting 12 rounds, you know. Absolutely. You know, those fluid, you're taking a sip of fluid in, right? You're taking like a sip any more than that, you're going to start getting gut problems. So you, you, uh, you know, that's another thing. Uh, if I was fighting today, I would weigh out. Like, what do I weigh at the end of the fight before I rehydrate? You know, if I started at 221, am I 217 or am I 215? It makes a big difference, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like, like you said, get on that. Start doing that. <laughs> of course, of course. Like, yeah, with us, with, with some of our guys, the sweat rates, you know, it is is so high. But you know, you know, there the might only be you know weighing on the day of the fight, like 60, 60 odd kilos, something like that. Fairly, uh, quite light. And so the percentage of their body mass that they're they're dropping. <laughs> Uh, and and, this, and especially around crucial crucial regions like the brain is going to be is going to be really significant, um, you know. And, and if if they're in an absolute slugfest for, for you know 10, 12 rounds, it's going to have some impact over time. Yeah. yeah, twelve rounds, twelve by three is what we've got now. Yeah, well, shall we shorten it down to ten questions now? <laughs> Inflammation also increases with dehydration. Yeah. I didn't make a PhD said that. I'm just counting <laughs> everything. Everything that comes out of my mouth is something I heard a smart guy say. 12 by three. For, come on, guys. Let's just get to the questions already. Should let's we get to the questions. Come on. What's let's do it. Question? 12, 12 times three, and it's starting from now. Okay. okay. Favorite ever fighter? Robbie Lawler. I don't know. Randy Couture. Best live fight that you've ever seen? Uh, Randy versus Chuck Liddell 3 was one of the most impactful fights I ever saw live. What's your favorite exercise to give an athlete? I mean, let's just, let's just stick with uh, trap bar deadlift. What's your favorite exercise to perform yourself? Trap bar deadlift. No. <laughs> Uh, you know, I actually like, um, I, I like, uh, you know, squats with the, with the little weights band. Cause you know, my, my poor spine is so old, but squats. What was the biggest setback of your career? Uh, so many, so many, um, uh, I mean, really it was just the uh, shoulder surgeries. I had three surgeries on my right shoulder. I'll end up getting a shoulder replacement here before too long. Um, yeah, not, not having a, any power in your right hand, the second half of my career did me no favors. What's the best moment of your career? Um, you know, and I got to win the belts. I got uh, beaten. Stefan was the day, you know, the ultimate fighter finale was the day. 
Um, you know, I knew I didn't have to work a job anymore and I was going to be a professional fighter. And then uh, beating Shogun when I beat him, not when he beat me, uh, was just, for me, that was like, uh, you know, beating the guy I'd grown up watching. What's your least favorite exercise to perform? Uh, I don't know. Probably like anything correctional. <laughs> Any movement patterns. Like all that <laughs> shoulder, Y-T-W, hate them. Got to do them, hate them. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I have a thing about them as well. Uh, what are your three non-negotiable behaviors? Three non-negotiable Um, I don't know, man. I, I'm going to eat a lot, drink a lot, and um, not sleep much. What's going to happen? What's, not a lot what is your favorite book? Uh, Fight Club was probably the most impactful book on me because I read it at the right time. Um, yeah, let's go with Fight Club. What's the biggest influence on your career? The biggest influence on my fighting career? Uh, my coaches at the hardcore gym, uh, Adam and Roy Stinger, because, you know, you, you right? Like there was no money and I was getting beat up. I was injured, blah, blah, blah. You know, without those guys, I don't, I don't ever keep going. I just say, all right, cool. I had a good run. I'm out. Peace. What are your goals for the next 12 months? For the next 12 months, uh, the successful launch of the new um, Performance Institute cross blah, blah, blah journal uh, for abbreviation and the launch of our certification, coaching certification program. And what is your number one goal? My number one goal, not to get arrested, probably just not to get arrested or divorced. Those would probably be good things don't get arrested don't get divorced i think that's the best answer that we've had on the podcast so far very simple it's very very simple and very measurable as well it's a very controllable behavior too that's (laughs) what you know it's a very attainable goal fantastic boys it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast i appreciate your time yeah yeah i mean hey if you guys ever want to do a reverse podcast on your podcast and have me interview you guys, I'm serious. Let me know because um, I follow you guys. I'm, I like your stuff. And, um, you know, I want to ask you questions, right? So you got to talk to Duncan, right? You got to hear our smart stuff. But I want to I want to know more about how you interact with your athletes and the training that you do and, and you know, the, the things you've had to overcome and, and the, the techniques and tactics you've used to overcome those things like communicating with technical coaches. Cause at the end of the day, you know, I'm, I'm in a $14 million building, but the problems are the exact same. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. that. That's, really good at. that's what I'm really good at is stealing other people's stuff and applying it to the yeah. performance Institute. I'm so good at it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, steal. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Price. It, it, half, it half became that halfway uh, through the podcast, didn't it? Um, a few questions, but we don't mind having just some open conversations and we we enjoy it and I'm sure the listeners enjoy it too. So we'll... we'll I think all your listeners are, are pretty educated and they're, they're looking to get smarter and they, you know, they're working with their own athletes and, and they want to know, hey, what, what can I do? You know, specifics, right? Where does rubber meets the road? Or there are other like um, Ivy League professionals that just want to make fun of us and bash us. So hell with them. Yeah. 
<laughs> They're like, oh, that would never work. That's yeah. why those guys don't trade anybody that's in the world champions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We'll definitely return the return the favor and answer some questions. All right. Cheers, guys. I appreciate it, man. Alan, that was a pretty good podcast, that. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, so the, the thing with, with Forrest, he's got such a wealth of experience in MMA and such an understanding of the sport um, that, you know, every, every single answer was, was gold dust, wasn't it? Mm, yeah, absolutely. I, I like that he is he's so passionate about the sport. He's got a real good understanding. But then he's very open to new ideas and new training. And with somebody leading the UFC PI like that, then mm. it's only going to accelerate, like they say on their, on their banner as you walk in, they're looking to accelerate the, the development of, of mixed martial arts in the UFC. As a, as a sport physiologically uh, and psychologically as well and I, I particularly like speaking to fighters about mindset because it's so psychologically tough training um, and be, being in a fight and everything like that I think um, I, you know I admire their, their mental fortitude as they go into a fight and I loved how he said um, about routine you make the extraordinary ordinary once you make a routine. So trying to replicate like the kind of the, them pre-fight nerves are going into a spa. And this is something that um, Steffi's done with Terry on this occasion, um, Terry Harper, taking her out of the gym into a different training environment to build up that nerves and build up that adrenaline. So she gets that in the fight because she didn't get that in the last fight because she was only having a male uh, sparring partner due to the uh, pandemic. So she didn't have that nervous energy going into a spars. And then next minute, she's in Eddie's back garden on fight camp under the bright lights in a really tough fight. And this was something that I did this camp, which were really good. And before I to say that as well, uh, once you do routine, make that extraordinary ordinary I thought it was fantastic yeah I love, I love stories like that you know and he talked about traveling two hours out of his way to go to the gym where he knew nobody just to spa you know and then his journey journey home might have taken four hours but I love hearing stories like that like um if if anyone's listened to the um Johnny Nelson interview that we did two things that that stuck with me there was one his his graveyard runs because he was a do you remember that he was afraid of of running through the graveyard when he was on his morning runs and every morning he had to psych himself up to run through the graveyard to be fair i have the same thing like when he used to live uh, at home with my mum and dad there's a there's a graveyard and i hated running it mm. so i used to sprint it as hard, hard as fast as i could and then the other thing is that he um trained with no music when he was doing his um, lines. So you could hear the pitter patter of his, his feet. And that's something that's always stuck with me as well. Um, it was it we were talking to about getting a TV on a blank wall. Sorry. Terry, 
and yeah. you're not, not that's absolutely perfect you don't need that because what you just need is no distractions and, and for you to think um very clearly about what you're doing at that point in time um and to focus on what you're doing and, and not getting distracted and essentially listen to the peer power absolutely there's loads of stuff there like with um with podcast with with forest i like the um talking about the sparring saying about being five or ten percent above the strike rate um i think that's quite interesting because that's something that probably not many boxing coaches implement in terms of numbers and workload obviously there's more to boxing and sparring and mma fighting than the numbers it's all about technique it's all about timing it's about um trying to control your opponents do what they uh, to do like kind of dance in the rhythm of your music but to have some sort of physiological benefit to that is really key and also what i say about the bag workouts as well being really specific we go very away from specific go for general adaptations but when something happens in fight let's say that happened with jordan where he had that crazy minute against ryan doyle he took the kitchen sink at him what kind of what can you do in a boxing specific session to try and match them kind of physiological demands yeah and this is where the you know the relationship with the technical coaching and, and coach comes in and the way that you communicate um that physiological demand and how you might be able to best prepare your boxer through technical drills um is, is really key i did like the fact that he mentioned um that he, he loves the the metalizer which is which is the which is a metabolic car it's a gas analyzer um and he really loves the the monitoring of training um and, and, and exactly yeah yeah taking the guesswork away and you know assessing as many things as you can um being able to get a good handle on training load management um but he, he you know and, he, and i think he appreciates that because what it sounded like to me when he was training um his he was doing hard days for for monday tuesday for a couple of days and then the rest of the week was pretty much neither here nor there. And what we would say, it's in no man's land. Or oh, as my daughter corrected me the other day, five-year-old daughter, daddy, what about girls land? All right, okay, we'll call it no person's land. <laughs> For it, we're going to make it equal now. So, yeah, he spent a lot of time, you know, just not fully optimising his training. And so having the, the support of the data, having the input from experts in, in the different fields, communicating, coming together to really optimise training so that every aspect you're getting the most out of, I thought that was a, a really important point. I'm really, really happy that I mentioned training load management because we talk about it as sports scientists, strength coaching coaches, even uh, Rob Madden, who's a physiotherapist, we asked him what is the biggest injury risk to boxers and he said mm. training load management spikes in training load the best thing that a boxer can do is manage his training loads yeah. and to, for that to come from a fighter uh, and sorry an ex-fighter uh, and now head of the uh, UFC Performance Institute 
that message is going to get to so many fight, young fighters coming through now, and that becomes a like a non-negotiable behaviour. Not drinking and eating and stuff like. That. I like his uh, I like his goal of uh, not getting arrested <laughs> or divorce. Either one. Yeah, you're winning if you're doing that. Fantastic. Thanks, Alan. Thanks a lot for uh, joining us again to interview another fantastic guest. Um, for those that are not a subscriber to the podcast yet, hit the subscribe button. Please leave us a rating and please tune in for next week's episode. Thank you very much. See you soon.